Thank you, uh, Jordan, for leading our worship thus far. Just a reminder this evening, as you open your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, don't forget this evening we have uh, a Q&A. Uh, we're going to have coffee and nibbles time, and um, let's get, there's some great questions that have come in. We're going to be really on the move. We've got about 11 questions that are going to be asked of the elders here and um, and so come along and uh, and enjoy that time be informed and uh, that's this evening okay and so and also next Saturday for those who can oh good to see you oh, okay yeah guys back there new face <laughs> didn't see really that. Uh, next Saturday we have a working bee for, for those of the church so half past nine here and um I'm so sorry, but I won't be here. Uh, but see Alex and um, and Joshua Medgard. They're the guys that are sort of heading it up and uh, want to know what to do, what to bring. Uh, see them. That's next Saturday. Let's just open the scriptures at Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty-one, and just hold your finger on the page, and uh, while we look into this one text. But first of all, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We have been singing of him as the one alone who forgives, the one who alone who makes us right before God. And uh, we have sung that we love him, and Lord, challenge our hearts in that. It's so easy to say these words, but Father, we want and long for that to be a reality. We long for everyone in this building to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ whereby we can truly and honestly call him Lord. And so, Father, as we look at this wonderful text, we have sung also as a question, show us Christ. And we pray that your spirit may brood over us today because this one verse certainly shows us Jesus Christ who is Lord. So be with us today. And so my eye, as your mouthpiece, Father, become nothing, but you become everything. Your word be powerful in all of our lives today. These things we pray in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we continue in this uh, section from verses 14 to 21, we have found and will find that... This section actually delivers more theology than anywhere else in the entire letter of the Second Corinthians. The section is, can we say, the very nerve centre of Second Corinthians and it also contains the, the very heart, the true heart of the gospel or any gospel ministry. And so if you know of a gospel ministry, wherever it may be, from this church or outside this church, and it has not this at its heart, I would say be very cautious. But we also see in this section that it's vital for us to understand as individuals because I will say that if we have not understood or grasped the meaning of this one verse, you do not understand the gospel and you certainly do not understand God's grace. And that is the reason why I have just chosen this one verse today. 
It's my duty to make sure that you do understand. And here in this one small important verse, 15 words in the Greek I believe, houses vital truth that we as ambassadors, those who are genuine believers, that we as ambassadors need to tell the world. And that message is, and that verse is, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's an awesome verse. We're going to look at that. And we ended last week, just to sort of weld this together a little bit, we ended last week learning from our text that, that, that every believer has a divine posting. Now, if you're a true Christian here today, whether you know it or not, learn it now. You have been divinely appointed. You have a divine posting to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now, it's up to you to say, well, am I a good ambassador or am I a poor one? I trust that you're a good one. That's what God wants. Some of our songs have been saying that. That's what we long to be. We long to please him. We long to live for him. And so this divine appointment is all about being God's mouthpiece and and appealing on God's behalf to sinners, those who are still outside of Christ, to be reconciled to him. Reconciled to God. That's our job. That's our duty. That's our, our, our mission for as long as we live on this earth. Now let's get practical. You go up to the average Joe blog on the street and say, be reconciled to God. He'll probably wonder what planet you come from. And his first question may be, why? Why? Why do I need to be reconciled to God? What have I done to him? Questions around that. You see, the idea of being guilty of sin and, and violating God's law, no doubt it will be foreign to him and it will need to be explained. Once again, that's your job. And so they, many people do not understand this and, and this is where many people come unstuck. Many people who are not Christians, they, they come unstuck here. You see, they will concede majority of people that they're not perfect and even as Christians in life and practice we're not perfect right we need cleansing every day from wrong thoughts and and wrong actions and wrong words and people on the street will generally concede that they're not perfect and they will concede that uh, even concede yes I am a sinner I have done sinful things they will concede that But seeing and understanding that being a personal problem with God and also an issue that only God can rectify, that's a completely different story to most people. It's a kind of, they kind of think that my personal sin is my business and I will work it out with whoever I choose, when I choose and how I choose. That's the kind of attitude, the philosophy that, generally speaking, the unsaved person will have today. And even, I might say, the religious person. But also there is a problem with many people who may have a little bit more understanding on this sin kind of thing, but not really, not Christians. They have a real problem with getting to grips 
on how a holy and a just and a loving God can reconcile, can make right a sinner who is guilty before him. In other words, they might ask a question, how can it be that a guilty sinner who deserves no mercy be declared righteous by a just God who without partiality demands all sinners to be punished? How can that be? How can that happen? These kind of questions go unanswered for many and as a result, many people, and I would say the majority of people, Jesus said that, Wide is the road, broad is the way, and many that be there on it. But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few that be on it. So we know where the majority are. They have a problem with getting to the answer of these questions. And so what they do is they, is they fall back on their own, own human reason and logic, if you want, or maybe they fall back on, on a religion that they were brought up in uh, to satisfy this dealing with sin conundrum that they have in their lives. That's the folks, or that's the, that's the, the stance of most folks today. The majority of people, that's what they take. You know, whether it's Eastern religions, whether it's New Age mystics or atheists, and even Christianity in general, we have this hard-hearted stance of cutting one's own deal with whoever and making restitution somehow to someone for their sinful lives. It may be accepting that punishment for sin is paid for by spending some time in purgatory, whether it's a hundred years or a thousand years, all depends how bad you've been. But they're kind of satisfied with that and thinking, well, yes, I'll come through purgatory and then I'll be clean. It may be, or it may be believing that you are reincarnated into a lesser life. If you're a bad dude, don't expect the next life that you're reincarnated to to be very great and wonderful. It may be believing that if you're a bad dude or if you committed sins and it all depends how many and how bad they are, you are going to forfeit good karma in this life. Folks, whether it's doing penance or saying a multiple number of hail Marys or going to a temple to offer to the gods, or even going to a church. It all boils down to the same inborn understanding for individuals that my sin needs to be dealt with somehow. And people go to all sorts of lengths, in the religious field, in the philosophical field, in every field you can think of, to satisfy, to justify themselves in thinking that, okay, I've dealt with it. Mankind has this hell-bent fetish of clutching to some man-centered religious system as a means of being acquitted for sins. And this is what the one true God makes very clear in his word. Praise God for absolute truth, right? I believe in absolute truth. I hope you do too. 
Truth's not up for grabs. Some of us are talking about that this morning at Theology Cast. Truth is not up for grabs. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. We have absolute truth, but don't look at me for it. Okay? And can I suggest don't look for anyone else. Don't even look at this church as being absolute truth. There's only one absolute truth and it comes from God. And the thing is, he's revealed that truth, that absolute truth, to us as individuals, to us as a church, in his word. So that's what we're going to stake our lives on. I'm staking my eternal life, eternal destiny on the absolute truth of God's word. I hope you are. So God makes us very clear. And, uh, and he says and he tells us how sins can be completely quitted. So that should whet your appetite, right? That should whet your appetite. There's one way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And, and, and God has this longing, dare I might say, in his heart for that to be. This longing for sinners to be reconciled to himself, it flows out of the heart of God, the heart of love of God. That's what we had last week, ended with that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here in our text today is this exclusive truth, whether man, whether you this morning like it or not, we have this exclusive truth, narrow you may call it, dogmatic you may call it, but it is the truth, no exceptions. And so this is how a holy and a just God can meet the demands of his perfect law against sin. And remember, his perfect law against sin is death. He told Adam in the Garden of Eden before he'd fallen into sin, the day that you eat of that fruit that I have forbidden is the day that you shall surely die. And we come to Romans and the same principle still applies. The wages of sin is death. And so here in this one verse we're told how, how God meets his holy, just demands of his law and yet can justly and acquit the sinner of all wrongdoing. That's got, to, that's, got to, that's got to be an amazing truth, right? Right, let's spend a little time extrapolating this good news text. The first one is the exchange began, because this is all about an exchange. He made him and you know sin. You know, even looking at this one verse this morning, we must understand that its context is clearly seen in a linking pronoun, okay? Little English lesson, pronoun. The pronoun is he. The proper noun is in the verse prior, God. Here's the pronoun, he, and so here's the link pronoun. So it tells us that this is linked to the prior verses. And so this means that God spoke of in the prior verse is the he that begins verse 21. And so what we see here is that God made him. Now there's another pronoun, two pronouns which is, of course, a direct reference to Jesus Christ also in the previous verse. So what we can safely say is that God made Jesus Christ who knew knew no sin. Clear enough? No problem. God made Jesus Christ who knew no sin. Let's stop right there and ponder this statement for a little while. The words he made indicates that God had a plan. It was his plan. His own plan. And in this plan, God's plan was the personal involvement of his sinless, beloved, eternal son, Jesus Christ. 
This was the plan. Now, most of us will know the end game of this plan. Can I call it that? But I want you to remove yourself from this scene here of this great exchange at this stage and allow your heart and mind to drink in what God, by himself, alone accomplished. Okay? This is what I want you to consider. Here was God's plan. And by the way, this plan eternally existed. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan that was brought about by uh, time and circumstance. You know, it wasn't kind of plan B as it were. This was an eternally existing plan. You see, it wasn't the power of Rome or the wickedness of man or the traitorous act of Judas that nailed Jesus to the cross and brought about this redemptive plan. No, no, no. Yes, those instruments of evil, can we call them, they, those instruments of evil, they were actively involved, but as Peter declares in Acts 2.23, says, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There you have from the text. Don't take my word for it, take the scriptures, because this is absolute truth. So here in our text is this eternal divine plan being described. A plan that only involved the triune God. A plan where mankind has nothing to do with its eternal design. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. God made. You get that? God made. He was the initiator. When I was thinking about this, I thought of an example. Remember Abraham? He was called out of the earth of Chaldees and to be God's man and God made him some wonderful promises of blessing all the peoples of the, all the nations of the earth and, and from him a seed would come, etc. And um, God reaffirmed this plan, this is part of a plan with Abraham. And then when we come to Genesis 15, he cut a deal, he cut a covenant, he made a promise. You know, it wasn't a spit in the hand, a shake, it was done in real good Jewish style. And you know, remember they killed animals and they cut them in half and they put one and a half there and one half there. And you read Genesis 15 and there was a, a, a burning lantern went up the middle which speaks of God's presence. Where was Abraham? What was Abraham doing? He was KO'd. He was completely knocked out. He was asleep. He wasn't part of that plan. Okay, And so God cut this covenant with Abraham and Abraham was not had anything to do with it. It was an unconditional covenant. And so God has a plan here. And uh, in relation to what we're talking about today, this is how this plan went down. Here's how this great exchange took place. He made him who knew no sin. You see that? And the man Christ Jesus who knew no sin... Who's this? This is the spotless Lamb of God. A Lamb of God's providing. This is the Lamb that God provided for a perfect spotless sacrifice. The fulfillment of all the animal sacrifices through the Old Testament. A fulfillment of that Passover Lamb that was slain and where the blood was applied to the doorposts and the lintels. A fulfilment of that sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac up on the mountain where Abraham was going to offer up his son and Isaac, Isaac said, Father, here is the, here's the fire and here's the sticks 
But where is the offering for the burnt offering? And what does Abraham say? My son, God will provide himself a lamb. A prophecy that maybe he didn't even know all the details of. And so here we are coming into the incarnation where the coming of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Spotless and unblemished. Peter declares Jesus to be holy and righteous in Acts 3.14. And again he says in the same book in, chapter, or in, uh, in, in his own letter, First uh, Peter 1.19, he refers to Jesus being unblemished and spotless, speaking of his holy, perfect life. John said of him, in him there is no sin. 1 John 3.5 Jesus Christ was absolutely sinless very different from every other man and woman born in the world because scriptures tell us, Romans 3 tells us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was only one man who was sinless and that was Jesus Christ. And it was important that he was sinless. It was important that he was perfect because no sinner could atone and redeem another sinner. No matter how good you are, no matter how what you do, you cannot redeem and pay for the price of another sinner. And so Jesus Christ had to be perfect. And he also needed to be a human being. He couldn't be some spirit or angelic form. Because only a human being could truly represent us and pay the price demanded for our sin. Blood had to be shed. A life had to be poured out. But also this man needed to be God. For only God is sinless, right? Right? Only God is sinless. This glorious God-man, can we say, Jesus Christ was fully God, yet fully man. This perfect man, God made what? What did he make? God made, here is the exchange in progress. Here is the exchange in progress. He made him to be sin on our behalf. You see that? To be sin on our behalf. We need to understand what this text does not say. It does not say that God made Jesus Christ into a sinner. No, it doesn't say that. Jesus did not become a sinner. We've already established his sinless perfection, which means he was not made a sinner, nor was he punished for any sin of his own because he did no sin. But what did happen in this great exchange was that the Father treated him, listen to this, the Father in heaven treated his only beloved Son, the sinless Lamb of his providing, as if he were the sinner. You get that? You might say, well, how did God do that? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In other words, God charged to the Lord's account. You got that? He charged to the Lord's account, to Jesus Christ's account, the sins of everyone who would believe in him. All our sins were laid upon him, Isaiah prophesied right back in chapter 53. And so the eternal God imputed, there's the word imputed, which means credited all our sins to the Lord Jesus' account and then in holy and just wrath treated his beloved perfect son as if he had committed every single sin that we have ever committed. I wonder if we can grasp the magnitude of this great exchange. I wonder if we've pondered it enough as we really should have. By all means, place yourself back here in the picture, right? In the scene. 
To be sin on our behalf meant that Jesus, our Lord, willingly suffered the full fury of God's wrath for every single one of our sins. The wages of sin is death, remember? That's what God said. He doesn't change his mind. And because he's holy, he cannot wink at sin, the old King James says. He cannot sort of, okay, put it under the carpet. And so when Jesus cried out on the cross with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was there and at that moment that God dealt with his beloved son who willingly bore our sin and paid the price that was demanded from us. It was there and at that moment the words of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 were fulfilled. And let me read them. It says this, Surely, prophesying ahead of time, probably a thousand plus years before that happened, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How accurate was this prophet Isaiah? This was God's exclusive plan for reconciling sinners to himself. This was accomplished when our sins were credited to his beloved son. And he paid the full price that was demanded for sin that was against us. The old hymn writer once wrote, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead to bear all ill for me. The victim led. Thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. How true those words are. The exchange of our sin upon him took place at the cross of Calvary. But as we will see, there are those who will benefit from this great exchange that God initiated. All those who believe, right? You see, folks, there is a settlement There is a settlement. There is an outcome to God's plan. And we'll see this in our next point. The exchange settlement so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the exchange complete. The words right at the beginning of that little phrase, so that indicate a purpose and outcome of this great exchange. You know, Our lives are surrounded by the principle of exchange and settlement. For example, you, you, buy a, you sign up to buy a house and uh, you have what you call a settlement date and, uh, and when that date, date arrives, uh, you pay the price that's demanded and you get the house. Simple. This happens all the time in our commercial world. It's a way of life. But what we have here in our text What we have here in our text is the only way any settlement can be had with God for violating his holy law. You got that? This is the only way. 
Here is the outcome that God desires from this great exchange that took place at Calvary. Here's the outcome. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see that? So how does this happen? The first part of the exchange is where God made Jesus Christ to be sin on our behalf. We've looked at that. In other words, the price demanded by God for our sin's punishment has been paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Not paid by us. That's why it's a free gift. Paid by Jesus Christ. So what this means is that for those who believe in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, is that our slate, can we say, has been wiped completely clean. That's great news, isn't it? No sin ever to be held against us. Whether it's past sin, present sin or future, God will not hold that against us. It's all been wiped clean eternally. You got that? Talk about great news. Why? Because Christ bore the punishment of all our sin, not just some of them, all of them, and he paid it all. Hence, as a believer, there is nothing to be held against us. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not for everyone, it's just for those who believe, who trust him. Paul also asks a rhetorical question in chapter 8 and verse 33 and he asks this as a, as a way of, of really pushing this thought out of no condemnation. He says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In other words, there's no one. The believer's sin account, can we say, the debt side of his sin ledger in the eyes of God has been completely wiped clean forever. And there is nothing, there's no sin that can be held against us. And even the greatest accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, cannot accuse us. He may try, but there's nothing there to accuse us of. How blessed and happy is the man whose transgression is covered, right? Psalm 23, 32 verse 1, sorry. That's great news. You know, it's great news to have that. Cleansed of all sin in the sight of God as a result of this great exchange that took place at Calvary. Cleansed, forgiven. That's an awesome thought. But you know what? It's only half the story. That's not all. It's only half the settlement for the believer. You see, the believer's sin slate has not only been wiped clean, the debt side of our sin ledger has not only been cancelled forever, but listen to this, folks, listen. God also credits freely, he imputes, he assigns to the credit side of our life ledger all the righteousness of himself. Did you hear that? So not only do we have a clean slate before God, but we have all the righteousness of Christ and God himself Loaded against us. Brothers and sisters, we are loaded. As Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesians, we have been blessed with every or all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more that God can give us, folks. Nothing more. In other words, the believer is not only a sinner who has had his sins completely forgiven, but we are loaded with all those wonderful blessings. He's been declared righteous by God. That is, just as Jesus Christ was charged with all our sin, as if he had committed them, 
We now have been charged or imputed with all the righteousness of Christ as if we now live that out in our own lives. You see, the, the Lord in heaven doesn't look upon a true believer as some old sinner that's patched up and struggling along and very dodgy, even though we may feel that and anyway we know by experience that what we do because we fail and, and, and in our flesh we let the Lord down, our minds wander, our words come out when they shouldn't for wrong reasons, uh, our actions may be wrong, even though we know that by experience God looks upon us and has written us in the book of life as righteous as one with Christ and so when he looks at his son who is seated at his right hand, he sees every true born again believer How does he do that? How does he do that? Let the apostle give the answer when he he wrote a letter to the Philippian church. He encourages them, but I believe warns them at the same time uh, who gather there. He said this, Be found in him not having a righteousness of their own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's how it comes about. If you haven't been declared righteous, if you're not a a born-again believer, if you're not saved uh, and you're still outside of Christ, you need to be reconciled to God by faith in His Son and you can know and be declared righteous by God to you. If you want your eternal destiny and sin problems settled by God, you must come to him in faith. That's it. That's all. Faith in what God has said, he has done through his son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This great exchange, folks, is God's way. The only means a sinner can be reconciled to God and declared righteous. The only way. You got that? The only way. No other way. You see, when repentant sinners come to God in faith and trust solely on his beloved son at the cross for forgiveness of sins, when they do that, God, you know what? He forgives. God erases all sin from your account and God clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. Great news, right? Great news. So my plea again, as it was last week, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God, eternally self-existing, not needing any other. You're other than us. But Father, in your sovereign creativity, you made man. And we know the story, man fell into sin. But Lord, you're a God of love. And you want man to be restored to yourself. You long for man that he be declared righteous. And show, Father, you have showed us the plan. You showed us how this can be, the only way. And so my prayer is that if there's any hard heart here today, soften them, Lord, and cause them to see that they need to be reconciled to God your way, your way alone. May we see in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth and the life and no person, no man can come to the Father but by him. So Father, we give thanks for your wonderful good news, for your word and for your truth. And in Jesus' name, Amen.